I would put rules in place. And I find people take rules less personally. If it's just a rule for you, it's easier. You just sort of automatically say the rule as opposed to thinking through like, wow, can I like restructure my entire calendar to fit this one more thing in? So one rule was there was one weekend day when I didn't do anything. And so if someone invited me to something, I'd be like, you know, I just have this rule. It's nothing to do with you. Would love to meet up another time. And it was so valuable to me for both myself and then they would take it less personally. Welcome to You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. You are ambitious in life and in your career, but something is missing. You want to bring more of your passion to what you do, because let's be honest, you pour a ton into your work and it needs to mean more. I'm your host, Laura Eigel. I'm a mom, wife, PhD, coach, advocate, introvert, and indoor rowing fanatic. I'm passionate about living a life that's in line with my values. We'll give you the actionable tips and tools you need to lead with your values, make a difference, and have career success. The world needs more diversity and authenticity in the top jobs at organizations. Your leadership belongs there. You belong in the C-suite. At a workshop that I used to facilitate, we would used to ask the question on a percentage between zero through hundred percent, how much of your career is yours to own? We'd often get answers like 50% company, 50% me, or 30% company, 30% manager, 40% me. Then I'd flash the number 100 on the screen in my PowerPoint presentation in a really big font. And there would be an audible, oh yeah, I see. So the point that we were trying to to bring home was that you own your career 100%, right? So this idea of it though, it's it's kind of heavy sometimes, but I want you to stop leaving your career up to your company and or your manager. So no more sitting back, waiting for your amazing work to get recognized and, and valued. I want you to start creating the momentum that you need for the career that you want. So maybe you were promised a new role or to get another team member to spread out the work and you're still waiting, or you can't remember the last time that your manager had a conversation with you about your career, let alone your professional development, or the time is over for expecting your manager or maybe even your HR department to help you drive your career. You know that it's time to take control over it, to make the impact that you want, to get the fulfillment that you want. And I wanna do that with you. So I created a space for you to do that. The Catch Crew is a space to hold you accountable with the tools you need to build an intentional career. We meet monthly with career building catch-ups live with me, and you get on-demand access to tools that have helped my clients get ready for interviews land jobs that give them more fulfillment and build their team cultures. Let me help you get the life and career that you want. Join the catch crew. Find out more at thecatchgroup.com slash catch crew. That's thecatchgroup.com slash catch crew. Welcome to this week's episode of the you belong in the C-suite podcast. Y'all I'm so excited to share this conversation with our guest this week, Liz Bosling, with you. Liz is the co-author and illustrator of the national bestseller, Big Feelings, and the Wall Street Journal bestseller, No Hard Feelings, 
which have both been translated into more than 15 languages. She's also an expert on effectively embracing emotions at work. Liz regularly speaks about how leaders can walk the line between sharing and oversharing, how they can build resilient teams, and create high-performing cultures of belonging. Her work has been featured by Good Morning America, The Economist, TED, The New York Times, NPR, Adam Grant, and Mindy Kaling. Whether you know it or not, you've most likely seen one of Liz's illustrations on LinkedIn or on social media. She's one of the most shared, reposted, and retweeted illustrators on workplace topics. I'm a huge fan of her work, and I reached out to her to invite her to talk about her newest book, Big Feelings. The feelings in Big Feelings highlighted are things that we have all felt at some time, maybe all at once, at work or at home. Through relatable illustrations, personal examples, examples from readers, and cited research, authors Liz and Molly talk about how to be okay when things are not okay in in their book, Big Feelings. In my conversation with Liz, we talked about the big feelings of burnout, perfectionism, and uncertainty. We also talked about the myths surrounding all of those big feelings. We talked about her personal experience with burnout and Of course, because I know this audience loves to take action, we also talked about all of the things that we can do to move through and with these big feelings. I'm a huge proponent of talking about emotion at work. We are humans that have feelings all of the time, and our feelings don't shut off and shouldn't shut off when you turn on your work laptop or walk into your office. So I'm really excited that we're talking about this on the podcast today. In our conversation, Liz and I also talked about her personal boundaries now that she's a new mother and what she's working on now for her own personal development. I cannot wait for you to hear this episode. And if you haven't grabbed it yet, go find Big Feelings wherever books are sold. Let's get started. I want to welcome you to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. I'm really excited to have you here, Liz, and thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Really looking forward to our discussion. Yeah. So before we get into our topics, which are the big feelings, I want to let you um, tell us a little bit more about yourself, your career, what kind of day in the life kind of looks like these days before we get into some of our topics. Sure. Happy to share. Um, so yeah, I wrote two books with my friend, Molly West Stuffy, all about emotions at work and in life. The more recent one is called Big Feelings, looks at very big feelings uh, that also tend to be hard. So anxiety, burnout, perfectionism. I'm also the head of content and communications at a company called Humu or HR software that makes it easy for teams to improve. Um, so lead a team there and really enjoy that work. Uh, and then I have a six month old. So my day to day is now I'm a morning person. I didn't used to be, <laughs> I've become one. And then sort of like trying to get in quality time, working, uh, sort of interspersed full-time job, plus the you know things I do um, on the side that are more passion projects. And yeah, that's that's where I am right now. Thanks so much for sharing. I appreciate it. So we're going to dig into big feelings and you mentioned a couple of them, 
uncertainty. Also in there is comparison, anger, burnout, perfectionism, despair, regret. How did you and Molly decide which big feelings to cover? That was my first, like, these are so good, but like, how did you narrow it down? How did you decide these were the ones that you really needed to, to talk a little bit more about and dig in? Yeah. So the genesis of the book was, so we wrote a book called No Hard Feelings, somewhat ironically, and that came out in February, 2019. And then we both later that year, so this is still pre-pandemic, went through really difficult times. So my father-in-law was in, who's like losing his 10-year battle to cancer. Um, and Molly, you know, was also going through personal um, health situations. And so for both of us, it was just like, okay, what do you, what do you, what do you do when the things you normally do don't work anymore? Uh, when it just really every day feels like a slog. And we pitched this book to Penguin in January of 2020, and they said, oh, big feelings, like this sounds depressing. Does anyone want to read about this? Pandemic hits. They come back to us in June and say, yeah, we'd love to publish that book. <laughs> so. <laughs> We originally came up with a list just based on our experiences. And then as we were talking to people, especially once the pandemic hit, then we did a survey. We surveyed about 2000 people all around the world and then ended up actually communicating. Some of those were interviews, some of them were email exchanges with a huge chunk of those people. And that really helped us narrow down the emotions. And interestingly, the chapters aren't all emotions, right? So one chapter mm -hmm. is uncertainty, which is all about anxiety, but uncertainty isn't an emotion. Perfectionism also technically is not an emotion. But what we found is that when we talked about anxiety or when we talked about envy, which is usually what, like, for example, comparison mm -hmm. leads to, people didn't have the same reaction as they did when we would say uncertainty. And so mm -hmm. we really wanted to meet people where they are. And I think it also speaks to this, like, especially envy as among women is a bad emotion. You're supposed to be, feel good for other people and supportive, especially of other women. And so it was interesting to me that everyone had this big reaction to comparison, but not as much to envy. And so I think it's, we're still trying to pretend like I'm not envious. I'm not a jealous person. I do compare myself. Mm -hmm. So it was, yeah. So we had the emotions and then there was also some research that we did around what are actually the words that are going to bring people in. Yeah, I I really resonate with that because you don't want to be envious, right? You really don't like, oh, yeah. no, I'm not that. But do I compare? Absolutely. Completely yeah. all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I love I love that aspect of it. The idea of meeting people where they are, um, mm -hmm. because I think that these big feelings are hard. Like mm -hmm. talking about anxiety, that is hard, but uncertainty a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. um, but you still absolutely outline um, anxiety within uncertainty and things to think about. And the book for those who have not read it yet is um, really relatable. It has, it usually has myths. Like you start out with like m myth busting, which are so common. We'll, we'll dig into a couple of these and a couple of these emotions in a minute. And then you talk about how to move through or get through some of these. And I even love the language about that because it wasn't like how to not how to stop doing it or not how to combat it or not how to never do it again. It's just like, hey, here's some things that you can do to do it either less often or make it less big. Yeah, totally. Um, Molly and I both fundamentally believe that the experience of life is to experience these feelings. And so if you get to live long enough, you will 
fail at something, you will lose someone you love, you will go through a period when life feels really hard. And so, yeah, I'm very resistant to the like, if you do this, you'll feel good for the rest of your life. That seems so unrealistic <laughs> to me. Yeah. So yeah, we very much tried to have it be like moving through recovery, exactly what you pointed out. I also like how um, you I think you almost made a joke about it. It was like, we are not experts. Like we don't have this all figured out. And really, this is probably why we wrote this book, because we needed more tools to figure it out, too. And that, too, was relatable. In addition, with just your your personal stories, it it feels more personal than the first book. I'm a fan. So I, I love your illustrations. I've read both books. So um, it felt a little bit more personal. Did you on purpose bring in more personal stories and in big feelings? Yeah, I think also because it came out of these specific difficult time periods that we both went through, it felt like a natural thing to share. And then, yeah, one of the big ideas or hopes for the book is that it destigmatizes a lot of these emotions. So in the beginning, we say we don't like even like bad or negative. They're just responses to things that are happening in our lives. And we don't need to judge ourselves for having them. You don't need to switch with anger. You don't need to act on it right away. But you're just a normal human being. And so the stories that we share were in the hopes that, you know, and then we also spoke to many other people, given Molly and I are both white women in tech. Um, so our stories are not representative, but hopefully that, yeah, even just hearing anyone's story helps you feel a little more, less judgmental of yourself for feeling similar things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So if you don't mind, I'd love to dig in a little bit more on um, two of the big feelings that you mm-hmm. talked about. So first, let's talk about burnout. And I I resonated so much with the first myth there. And, and, and it was really about um, this idea that you don't realize how bad it is. Kind of this idea of, and I, I coach um, women and they come to me when they're like, I just don't want to reach burnout. But as you hear them talk about it and their day and what it's like and what they're feeling, big surprise, you're already in it, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, you're so deep in it, you don't realize it until somebody else might, that you, that knows you well, or um, is asking the right questions can, can see some of those signs. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, and then I'm curious to hear if these also resonate with what you hear um, with the people that you coach. So Yeah, spoke to, I just remember this quote that stuck with me was, um, spoke to someone who specializes in burnout and he said, yeah, people tend to talk about it as the moment when you just can no longer get off the couch. And in fact, what usually happens is that burnout taps you on the shoulder over and over and over and over again until it hits you with a bus. And we're really bad at listening to those feather taps because we glamorize, oh, I'm just, I'm so busy. I can do it. I'm a superwoman. I can balance it all. And that, and there's nowhere in there is any reward for saying, you know, I'm not going to do anything today, which is actually often what we need. And I experienced this last, I would say, yeah, summer of 2021 or 2022 now, the years go by. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I was doing okay. I knew I was stressed, but I thought I basically had everything handled. And then my husband asked me in passing just to send him a calendar invite for this dinner we had coming up. And I burst into tears. And it was just like, you know, it would have taken 10 seconds, but I, I just, it was like, I cannot have one more thing 
that I need to think about or that's on my to-do list. And how dare you put this on me? It was, I just had this immense reaction. And that was one of those signs of, whoa, this is, I am not doing as well as I thought. Other ones that I commonly hear are the idea of getting sick, not, you know, COVID sick, but getting a cold or having some kind of socially acceptable reason to, you know, clear your calendar for a day sounds really appealing, right? That's a horrible place to be in. If you're like, I hope I get a cold. And then that one that resonates the most with people is this concept called revenge bedtime procrastination. You're exhausted, you go to bed, and instead of falling asleep, you take out your phone, you get on Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, the news, whatever it is. And it's none of those things are necessarily bad. It's just when they when you're self-sabotaging, you're not getting the rest you need. And it's a it's usually a sign that you're trying to claw some form of control. A lot of people say, like, this is the only me time that I have throughout the day. And it's, you know, that shouldn't be the only me time. It can be hard to carve it out, but like usually there are actually small things you can put in place. So yeah, I'm curious if that if that's what you're hearing or if you would add anything to that list. Yeah, the that list it resonates so much. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, and yes. <laughs> and um yeah, the the extending of the day, like that's very popular. Like mm-hmm. I'm I'm also guilty of this. I have right. been yeah. trying to set <laughs> boundaries around this myself. Um, and like turning my phone off and screen time mode and all that kind of stuff. And the other thing I would say is the health things have gotten your point on, oh, I wish I was sick so I could not work. But also, I also hear it's just a cold. I need to keep working or I have COVID and I'm working from home. It's fine. That kind of thing. And so my personal burnout story is um, I was scheduled for surgery for back surgery. I was having chronic back pain and I was scheduled for surgery and I had called the doctor to say, Hey, I'm not feeling great. Can I take this, this cold medicine? And they're like, no, come in and we'll check you out. And they said, cause you can't take any medicine before a big surgery. Hmm. And I would, I, and I had a trip that was coming up, an international trip, a super glamorous jet setter. Right. And I was, you know, getting that in, going to have the surgery right after I got back. And they said, I ended up going on the trip, still sick, couldn't get into, I postponed the doctor visit, came home from the trip in pain because I was off my meds um, from the chronic pain to, to go get the surgery. And the doctor said, you have strep throat and you cannot, you cannot get the surgery because you are very sick right now. And I was like, wait a minute, what? It had gotten that bad that I, I went on an international trip without my pain medicine to then like really, really think about, okay, what is happening here? My body was like, Nope, you're not doing this. And, um, a really great HR partner was like, Hey, you, you really need to listen to your body mm-hmm. and spend some time at home. You were only going to take a couple weeks off for your surgery. Surgery has been postponed. You need to take some time off anyway, take more mm-hmm. time off. And so I finally oh, listened. Really nice. Yeah, it was, yeah. it was very nice of her to be like, you know, <laughs> yeah, you aren't listening to your yourself. And yeah. so maybe listen to me. It's going to be okay. It'll all be all right, but take off more time. Um, and so I did, um, the burnout didn't stop there, but it sneaks up on you and then it can get very bad very quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, es- totally. it escalates very fast, I think. Mm-hmm. So I would add that kind of ignoring physical health signs mm-hmm. 
or minimizing physical health signs too is a big one for my clients and me personally. Yeah. Yeah. I think also this mentality of I can just push through it or I will rest when. Yes. No, you need to rest now. (laughs) Yes. The I will rest when and the when never comes. Yeah. And when you finally do take the vacation, you're just sleeping because you're exhausted and you're not enjoying your vacation. So those are, I think, things that we can all agree on. We've seen um, all these trends. And what I love is that you not only kind of debunk some of these myths around these big feelings, but also you tell us what we can do next. And so I loved reading the idea of boundaries and I I'd love to go there. How has it, you know, just the idea of setting those boundaries for yourself now as you're like personally, like you, you now have a baby, like what's that been like for you? And have you shifted what boundaries mean for you or do you have more of them now? What is that like? Yeah, it's a great question. I would say... I think they've shifted in that I feel more comfortable establishing boundaries. And I think this is something that many women suffer from where if you're putting a boundary in place to help yourself, it feels hard and it feels, you feel guilty. And maybe, maybe I don't really need to have this boundary, but when there's a small creature that depends on you, it's just like, nope, it's, 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 it's like, it's for someone else. So it sort of feels easier to establish the boundaries plus there's the you know sometimes this is a real excuse but there's like oh my baby needs me (laughs) that's like kind of nice sometimes but I would say yeah the general one one learning from that that I've sort of implemented in my in my life even outside of having a child is it's often useful to have an accountability buddy where someone so I used to have um, and I actually still have this, but this was even pre-becoming a mom, I would put rules in place. And I find people take rules less personally. If it's just a rule for you, it's easier. You just sort of automatically say the rule as opposed to thinking if you're like, wow, can I like restructure my entire calendar to fit this one more thing in? So one rule was I, there was one weekend day when I didn't do anything. And so if someone invited me to something, I'd be like, you know, I just have this rule. It's nothing to do with you. would love to meet up another time. And it was so valuable to me for both myself and then they would take it less personally. And I think with an accountability buddy, I would also say, like, if I would feel myself really getting worn down, I would say, okay, my rule is I will not have a back-to-back day. Mm. not take on more than this number of things. And for a while, I was actually like meeting with a friend on Sunday nights to have her look at my calendar and call me out on things and be like, I'm your accountability buddy. You are violating all your rules on (laughs) Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. You need to move some stuff around. So I think harnessing this, you know, if you do have that tendency where it's, it's easier to advocate for your friend than it is for yourself, actually pulling in your friend to advocate for you or finding ways to make that more part of the process. I found is really valuable. And then, yeah, I also, I mean, when I was pregnant, I, I get, it was the same thing where it was, I listened much more to what my body was telling me because I was growing a child and it was actually very horrifying to realize how much I don't listen to my body normally to suddenly be like, Oh, I don't feel that well. I know I'm nervous. And should I call the doctor? Like maybe I should lie down for a while and in my, you know, when I'm not pregnant, it's just like, yeah, I'm, I'm extremely nauseated and I feel like I might faint. Let's go. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, to your point, the, the sort of suddenly tuning into my body in this way that I never had before was really illuminating. 
Yeah, that's so interesting. I I love that that was an insight for you. It's so easy, like you said, to do it for other people. Mm-hmm. And I have done that too. Kid needs to go to bed, can't do it. <laughs> the mm-hmm. whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, this is a commitment I made. I can't do it. Um, mm-hmm. As opposed to advocating for yourself. It's, mm-hmm. it's still just so hard. I find that in the framework that I teach, it's if I tie my boundary to something that's important to me, like a value, Mm. then it becomes more of an intrinsic motivation. And I I ground myself back into, okay, this is why I'm doing it. Right. So, so right now um, for me, I'm having just the idea of time for myself, always still I'm giving away time all, all over the place. Um, But now it, it feels like you know, if I can tie that to something that's important to me, which I call balance, not work-life balance, but like feeling Mm -hmm. centered, that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. And so where is that? How do I do it? And grounding it back into there, it kind of reminds me like, yeah, that I I am important and I need to, I need to do this for me. Family is also a one for my value for me too, but um, that's me doing for others. So as long as there's at least one in there, that's kind of more me centered, Um, and I'm actually focusing on it. It feels like I give myself space to do it. I love that. I really, yeah, we talk about that, not quite as in depth, but a bit in the book of, I think I share the story of my friend who actually created a list of values that he wanted to live by in a Google doc. And then he went at the time he was feeling very burnt out and he went through the list and realized he wasn't living by any of them. And so what he started doing was he would highlight, he highlighted the ones that he was not living by in red. And now at some frequency, I think it's maybe every three months, he'll revisit that. And if the list is more red than black, then he'll re like think what he's doing and how he's spending his time. So yeah, I think it's, it's a really useful practice. It really is. And it, it it just, it's a good self-reflection, self-monitor. And then it also allows you to change, like, is this value still important to me or is another one more important to me right now? Yeah. I like that. And it lets you kind of evolve I feel like we're at the beginning of the year. So it feels like all very big and like goal steady time. Right. But when you think about it quarterly, like your friend did, I, I feel like it gives you more of a chance to, you know, the short term and it's not all or nothing kind of thing, mm-hmm. which yeah. kind of leads me into perfectionism when that mm-hmm. feeling of all or nothing kind of, mm-hmm. right. We can go there next if that's all right with you. Yeah. I think perfectionism, it's interesting. The and we talk about this as one of the myths. It's very much sort of defined by black or white thinking, all or nothing, either I'm always amazing or I'm absolutely nothing. But one of the biggest misconceptions that we came across as we were speaking to people is that perfectionism is centered around being perfect. Um, and you that sounds reasonable given that it's called perfectionism, but it's actually centered around the fear of failure. So if you're striving to do a really great job, that in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's wonderful to be passionate and to strive for excellence and want to be improving. But it's healthy when you're like, you know, I'm going to make mistakes along the way and that doesn't define me and that's part of the learning process. It turns into perfectionism when you're actually motivated by the fear of failure rather than moving towards an exciting goal. So it's, you know, it's the example that we give is if you take a test and you get a 98%, if you're a healthy achiever, healthy striver, you're like, that's a great score. And I missed one question. I'll look into it, get it right the next time. A perfectionist will get a 98% and see that one question they missed as an inherent 
you know, I'm inherently a horrible person. I am bad. It's really wrapped up in shame. Um, but they're so hyper-focused on failure that that is really the driver of it. It's like, I, ha- I cannot fail. Otherwise, I won't be loved. I won't be successful. I won't be safe, whatever it might be for that person. You put so much into your work and doesn't it feel like it needs to mean more? It has maybe taken you longer than you thought to get the kind of role that you want. You thought maybe you'd be making a bigger impact by now. Things may have stalled out or not going the direction that you'd like. Maybe you need more support from your manager. Maybe you need to change how you manage your time and your priorities. Or maybe even go to a different company that aligns more with what matters to you. But you know that something needs to change. And you want to be more in control of the work you do and the impact that you make on the people around you. So let's work together to help you build your intentional career. The Catch Crew is a space to hold you accountable with the tools you need to build an intentional career. So my friend, it is time that you get the career fulfillment that you crave and the catch crew is your go-to community for putting your needs and ambitions front and center. I want to help you hold you accountable to your aspirations and make sure you take the steps you need to get the life and career that you want. I want you to join us in the catch crew, go to the catch slash catch crew. That's the catch slash catch crew. We have our monthly catch-up session coming up soon. I hope to see you there. It feels like like the stereotypical perfectionist is like all the color-coded folders and like the pretty pencils and perfect desk when really it is. It's that fear of failure. What are, uh, what were other myths that were surprising to you or other things about perfectionism that came out of your, your interviews and research? Yeah, a lot. One that was, I don't even know if we actually wrote this as one of the main myths, but that kind of surprised me was just how perfectionism intersects with procrastination. So we also tend to think of perfectionists as the person who's always doing things and, you know, is just like micromanaging and getting every, it's just a state of action but it's just as often a state of inaction. And with procrastination, a lot of people are like, oh, I'm a procrastinator. It's because I'm lazy. It's because I'm, you know, sort of flawed. And in fact, again, it's this fear of failure. It's the, I don't even want to put words on the page because the words won't be good enough. I don't want to send out a draft because people will judge me for it. I don't want to apply for this job because there's no way that I'm going to be successful or pass the interview and I'm an imposter. And so I think, Yeah, reframing procrastination, not as a sign that you don't care or that you're lazy or that you don't have any like time management skills, but often asking that deeper question of what what fear is preventing me from moving forward. And often it's kind of an unrealistic fear. You know, it's the, well, so with the job example, maybe I, you know, won't interview, I won't get past the first round. It's like, okay, great. Yeah, (laughs) that's fine. You know, like most of the time it doesn't even have anything to do with you. So yeah, I I think it's, that was to me what stuck out is how we think about procrastination when in fact, it's usually not about laziness or any kind of like lack of initiative. Yeah. Because if I don't start the thing, Mm -hmm. I won't fail the thing. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes that feels safer to us than 
trying. But we're still probably thinking and potentially ruminating about the thing. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. <laughs> and then that brings us back to uncertainty and anxiety, maybe. Mm-hmm. All of yeah. these are, are inter... It feels they can't intersect is did you find that some overlap more than others or that some people are feeling some of these things at the the same time yeah absolutely we had to come up with some kind of coherent framework for the book but it's definitely um you know perfectionism one of the chapters is about despair and that also often goes hand in hand with perfectionism um when things are uncertain and you're anxious you're more likely to lean into perfectionist tendencies as a way to have control. So they're very intertwined and you can experience all seven big feelings at once. But we we sort of had to figure out a way to speak about them separately. But yeah, uncertainty, very big right now. I think I read somewhere that some people are saying that we're just, we're living in a perma crisis where when the pandemic hit initially, it was extremely hard, but it did seem like we would have this green garden moment at some point where we would, you know, the pandemic would be over and life would go back to normal. And now three years on, it's just like, if it's not the pandemic, it's something else. The head, It just, it feels so intense all the time. And so, you know, uncertainty, humans hate uncertainty. So there's research that shows that we would rather know that a bad thing is going to happen tomorrow than have a 50% chance of it happening. Because if we know it's going to happen, we can control the situation or we think we can. So it's like, okay, if I know tomorrow I'm going to get like punched in the face or, you know, whatever it is in an extreme example, I can, I can plan. At least I can think about it. I can prepare for it. I can prepare what I'm going to do after to help the situation. But if there's a 50% chance, suddenly, like, I have to prepare for two scenarios, and it's it's just more nerve wracking. And then again, if there's like five things that could happen tomorrow, now I'm thinking about preparing for five different things. And then it also is really tied to perfectionism, because what came up over and over again, in conversation with people is this feeling, especially if you're a manager or leader or a parent of... I need, let's say that there's five things that could happen tomorrow. I need to have a perfect response planned for each of them. It's this, again, idea of I need to be showing up with all the answers at all the times, as opposed to what's a more reasonable expectation and like puts you in a healthier mindset that we describe in the book is this, I'm a person learning too. So it's really different if you say, you know, I need to be an amazing mom the moment that the baby is born versus I just had a human come out of my body or into my life. Yeah. Um, I'm learning to be a person who now has this being that is completely dependent and keeping me up all night. And that's, it just, it gives you, you it makes it easier to give yourself grace and actually seek help as opposed to kind of turning inward and being like, I'm a failure for not knowing exactly what to do in this moment. Yeah. With all of the kind of the titles that you just gave parent manager, Mm. like executive, whatever it is, I think we have this schema of like, okay, well, a person that is like this knows X, Y, and Z. And so I am going to be this persona. And, (laughs) um, I just remember like, growing up in different HR roles and like facilitating, I thought, Oh, I always have to know the answer or whatever it is. And actually, no, you, you really don't. And the leaders that say that, like, I'm confused too, or I'll figure it out or let's work on it together. That authenticity and transparency. Um, I think people are craving, 
right? Yeah. And it's, it also leads to such better outcomes if you don't show up with an idea with not even an idea, but like a fixed opinion on what the team needs to do or what needs to happen in the next hour. Because again, especially I'd say now when things are shifting so rapidly, you have no idea. Like you can come and be like, this is, it should always be an assumption. (laughs) And then, yeah, you take in more data points, learn what other people think and move forward from there. In terms of that, the perfectionism, one thing that I really resonated with and in how you can work through it is explore where you learned that you were not Mm -hmm. good enough. That like hit me in my gut. Explore where you learned that you are not good enough. Like, and that might be in childhood, that might be in, you know, how you were recognized or all those kinds of things. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. So this is, I mean, it comes up a lot in parenting and it can, your parents can be very well-intentioned. They're not always, but you know, it can be that you win the soccer game and you go out for ice cream or you get an A and your parents celebrate you. And when you get a B, they push you to do better. Or, you know, if you lose the soccer game, if the car is quiet on the way home. And these are just, again, often parents don't really understand the effect of that. But what it signals is that you get rewarded and we really love you and we'll celebrate you only based on your achievements and outputs. And so a much healthier way of being both also for adults is just like, yeah, it's exciting to win and we should strive to do our best. But, you know, you're not always going to be able to. And as long as you're putting an effort and showing up, that's going to get you farther than being so attached to like these specific milestones, you know, and then I think often too, it can happen in a relationship later in life. But yeah, usually perfectionism does come down to somewhere we learned that we are loved only when we show up in a certain way. And we're all seeking love. So that's the, that's the thing. We're all seeking belonging, connection, all of that stuff. So I love that idea of inner reflection of basically, where did you, where did you learn that? Mm-hmm. And you're almost debunking your own personal myth mm-hmm. or lived experience and and those kinds of things. And that can, that can then evolve too. Yeah. I think it to be a nice piece of it too, is once you understand where that's coming from, You can then also ask yourself, if I take that part of me or I take that experience and set it to the side, who do I want to be? What do I want if that didn't exist? And for some, I think some people have never asked themselves that or never realized how much their aspirations and their behavior is still impacted by those messages, by those lessons they learned early on. Um, For me, parents are immigrants. They're, they love me a lot. But yeah, it was very much like they wanted what was good for me, which ended up not being what was best for me. So they, I think, came to this country and were just like, you should get a stable job. You could be a lawyer, banker, doctor, and then you need to get a job and work there for 50 years. And then that's that's what we want for you. That's what you should do. And that I, I don't even think that that's the best next step in this changing world um, for everyone, definitely, and definitely not for me. And so kind of taking myself out of that and saying like, outside of what they want for me, what makes me happy? What brings me lightness? What am I actually going to be successful at long-term was a really radical question that I did not ask myself until my mid-20s. I didn't even think to ask myself. And it may not even just be the parental relationship. It might even just be society. 
like totally. norms and how we were brought up and what is good, what is not good. Are you the stereotypical XYZ persona or if you're not, especially for marginalized groups as well? Yeah, there's lots of different pressures that we face. And yeah, it's it's definitely, I'm glad you brought that up. It's definitely not, it's not that once you figure out what you want for yourself, it still might not be necessarily the next step you want to take. I think sometimes it's like, actually, I want to make structural reform. And so I'm still going to have to operate somewhat within an environment that has certain expectations of me. And that's very unfortunate, but but I love the question because it is one that I, I just don't think many of us are are asking, like you said, not until your mid twenties, did you kind of figure this out? And I don't think there's a too late of time to ask it. And I think that we should be, we should be asking ourselves all the time and allowing ourselves to explore different pieces of what could bring us happiness or fulfillment and allow ourselves to change and ebb and flow. Because even sometimes it might be our expectations of ourselves. Or yeah, who we want to be seen as. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I always love to ask, like, what other things are they looking forward to, um, excited about? And and then um, one other last question about how are you developing yourself? So what are you, mm-hmm. what are you most excited about right now in the next couple of months? I am, I mean, I think the first year of life, like, I don't know, my baby has already, he's laughing, he's giggling, he's turned from potato into a person. (laughs) So kind of continuing to watch that. I'm really excited about. He also started sleeping through the night. So I'm thrilled about sleep. (laughs) That's that's a game changer Um, for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then I, you know, I think it's going to be interesting to me to see as I work in tech, it's been a really hard couple of months. There've been layoffs. If you haven't been laid off, you're being asked to do way more with less plus having this sort of guilt of not having been laid off. So, and then I think all of that is sort of a sign of power shifting back to executives. Yeah. And I, I'm going to say, I'm excited that I do think some organizations are not abusing that shift and are saying like, it's still important to invest in well-being and in DNI and put money where our mouths are. So I'm hoping that this is not like a complete reversal of some of the progress that has been made over the past couple of years. Yeah, I was just talking. Um, so I teach a, a a class in organizational psychology and I was mm-hmm. just talking today and that idea of survivor's guilt came up because we were talking about tech companies and and that is that is such a huge thing to, to deal with in addition to all of the other work, because then you want to keep your job and you're trying to meet those new demands. And, or if you're on the other side, it's the being laid off and not expecting it or hoping that it would take longer for that to happen. In addition to just some of the not great ways that some of these companies had decided to share news has just been, mm-hmm. um, not optimal to see, I think. Yeah. There's some wild stories out there. There are. And um, to your point, like this, this shift that we had made in the pandemic, it felt like so long coming where we're kind of mm-hmm. shifting kind of the social contract more to employer and less employer, more to employee. I'm glad that you're still hopeful that some are doing it. I see I see a glimmer of hope, but then also mm-hmm. kind of shifting back to some of the pre-pandemic yeah. ideas, right? Yeah, I was very excited too about, you know, we'd for knowledge workers, at least this, the idea of an office and the idea of being quote unquote at work was really torn down. 
And it was, in essence, created by like white men, right? There's even the stories about the office being too cold for women. <laughs> um, and it did seem, as we thought about potentially going back to spaces in person, an opportunity for a more diverse group of people to design what that looked and felt like. So I hope that that is still a possibility. I think it's a possibility. And I hope as we show up and move through these big feelings inside and outside of work, we can bring some of that stuff to the forefront even more. I'm hopeful mm-hmm. just because of the the students that I teach, they, they're they coming in with some expectations. And how, what, how old are they or where are they in their Yeah, career? so they're Gen Z. They're um, oh, so yeah. I teach <laughs> an undergrad class and uh, in a grad class. And so- yeah they have higher expectations. And I think that's a, that's a thing that every generation will bring. They're Mm -hmm. saying that they're kind of demanding the stuff that all of us want. So it's going to be good for everyone. Yeah. Molly and I always reflect on when we work with groups that are mostly Gen Z, you know, we think of ourselves as very emotionally intelligent. And then with some of them, we're like, whoa, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) they really are feeling feelings at work and it's cool to see, but it's Yeah. yeah, even the two of us are like, well, there's like, we have work to do and how we show yeah. up and what we think about at work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm hopeful because of that. And last question, what are you, what are you working on for yourself in terms of your own development? Yeah, I am always trying to think of ways to be a better manager. Also trying to understand, I think one of the big things has been how do you create some semblance of stability for people that report to you when everything feels really uncertain and when the organization is going through a lot of change. So that's definitely something. And then, yeah, so I lead content and communications. So also really thinking about storytelling and, and trying to like learn more about journalists, the whole media industry is also shrinking and shifting really rapidly. So how do you tell stories when everything is changing and when like, even what is sort of a top publication is shifting as well? Yeah, I love that. Well, I just want to thank you so much for coming on today and accepting our invitation. I had such a great time diving into all these topics and just appreciate sharing this space with you and to just learn more about you. Yeah, you too. It's always really fun to compare notes with someone who's doing similar work. I love it. Well, thank you so much and have a great rest of your day. I want to thank you so much for listening to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. If you are enjoying this content, please remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. By leaving a review, you are helping others find this content. We will be featuring five-star reviews on air in upcoming episodes. Editing and support for the podcast is done by S&E Podcast Management. To get more tips and tools to help you live a life guided by your values, go to thecatchgroup.com. Keep your boundaries and take care.